This morning, we're going to be in Acts chapter 1, first 11 verses, so verses 1 through 11. So this is the book of Acts, which is Luke's second book. He even begins this one saying, in the first book of Theophilus. Um, and so it's a continuation, a second part of the gospel of, of Luke, which actually what we're going to read, there's some overlap with the end of the book of Luke as well. Um, and I might refer back to that at some point. So I'm going to read the text first, and then um, we will dive a little deeper into what it says and what it means for us today. In the first book of Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So I'm going to focus most of the time on verses 7 and 8. But I wanted to read the whole thing and even walk through a little bit of the entire passage for the sake of context. I've titled this message, A Final Question for Jesus. Now, of course, as we see at the end of this passage, and even at the beginning, Jesus continues to live and reign and work. But specifically, on this earth, in the flesh, the last question that was posed to Jesus before he ascended um, for the final time. And the question that they posed was, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? But before we get to that question and Jesus' answer to that final question, let's look at what is going on in the text. After Luke kind of explains that this is the second book, the sequel, um, and what he did in the first book, he says, He, Jesus, presented himself alive to them, his disciples, after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So there was a 40-day period from his resurrection until this event, his ascension into heaven. And during these 40 days, it tells us what Jesus was primarily occupied doing, and that was he was appearing time and again to his disciples and doing two things. One was proving his resurrection. We can think of how he said, touch my hands, feel feel where the nails were, how he ate with them. He physically ate food. Not that he needed to. He had a perfected body, but that just to show, look, I am physically here. I am resurrected. I'm proving it to you. So one of the things he was doing during these 40 days was to show, I'm alive. I'm resurrected. Believe me on this. Second thing, it says he was speaking about the kingdom of God. And so in one sense, he kind of kept doing what he had been doing. Jesus' message throughout the Gospels, and Luke in particular highlights this as well, is speaking about the kingdom of God, 
Um, the kingdom of God is at hand, is what he preached. And he continues to do so. Now, no doubt at this point, though, he is speaking about the kingdom of God in light of his resurrection. We read in the Gospels that he went through the scriptures and showed how all of scripture told about him. All of scripture pointed to the, to the cross. All of scripture talked about the kingdom of God that he was going to inaugurate and one day fulfill. And so he continues to speak about the kingdom of God, proving his resurrection, and now, I'm sure, impl- drawing out implications of what it means now as that the kingdom has been inaugurated. He also then, though, gives them a command. In verse 4 it says, And while staying with them, or some translations say eating with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. And so he gives them the command, stay here. He's talking about his kingdom, but stay here in Jerusalem and wait for this Holy Spirit to come. That's gonna, you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And this is a promise from the Father. Believe in this promise and wait for it here in Jerusalem. And it's out of this then comes the disciples' question. So the disciples are putting some pieces together. They're saying Jesus is resurrected. He's back. He's here. He's talking about this kingdom, this kingdom of God that he's speaking about, he's been teaching about, he's still talking about that. He's telling us to stay here in Jerusalem, in in God's city, right? The, The central city of Israel. He's saying to wait. Something big is going to happen. The Holy Spirit's going to come here. And they put these pieces together, and this is the question that they come up with in light of that. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? You see, they can tell that something big is on the horizon. That Jesus is setting stage, wait here in this important city, in my city of my people, and wait for the Holy Spirit. And so they say it must be him restoring the kingdom to Israel. Like he's finally going to reestablish the political reign of Israel in the world. It's finally going to happen. We're finally going to have power as Jews. That's the question they have. And there's a couple things behind this question. One thing is the timing. For them, that's, that's the end. That's the culmination of everything they're waiting for, the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. And so in a way, they're asking, is this the end? Is this it? They're asking about the timing. Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? It's a question of timing, a question of the end of the world as we know it. And there's also assumed the nature of the end of things. As they say, as they assume restoring the kingdom to Israel, and in their minds meaning the physical, political Israel. Is this when it's going to happen? And we don't maybe ask, is this when Israel is going to be restored? Um, in some senses we might, but a lot of times we are asking the question, is this it? Is this the end? And there's countless news articles on social media and and numberless people who have made predictions about this is the end, the time is soon, this is it. And so while we might not ask that question in the exact same way, we have the same question. Is this the end? Is this it? Jesus, are you at this time going to bring this world as we know it to an end? What's it going to be like? What's going to happen? How should we prepare? And how Jesus answers this question is enlightening. And in typical fashion, as we see in the Gospels, Jesus answers maybe not exactly the question they were answering, but the question that they needed to be asking, and the question that we need to be asking as well. I'm going to make two points, kind of three, because one of them is kind of two points. The first is one thing that we can't know. And then I'm going to 
draw out two things that Jesus says we can know, and not only that we can know, that we should know. He begins his answer in verse 7 by saying, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. We do not know when this age, when this world will come to an end. We do not know when Jesus is coming back. That's the question they were asking. Is this the time? Is this the end? And he said, it's not for you to know. In fact, we even read in, in Matthew 24 that Jesus says, not even him in, in his human flesh, at least, I don't even know. Not the Son. Only the Father knows the time. There's more evidence that we don't know is how many people you've heard say, this is it. This is the end. How many years have there been a, a date stamped on them? This is it. This is when he's coming back. Or even in other religions, this is the end. This is what's going to happen. And time and time again, they've been left unfulfilled. Now, it doesn't mean he's not coming back, but it just means that, Jesus, that what Jesus said is true. They'll come when it's least expected. They'll be like a thief in the night, and that no one knows when he's coming back. Now, some might say, well, can't we tell from when we, if we match up current events and we look at the book of Revelation and other places in Scripture, can't we get, figure out when Jesus is coming back? And there's a sense in which we can and a sense in which we can't. We can know that the end is soon. That is made clear in Scripture. But what's interesting is that even the writers of the New Testament said that the end was soon. In 1 John chapter 2, the Apostle John, of course, is writing, and he says um, in verse 18, He writes, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Now, this was the first century. He says, this is it. And so, in a sense, the answer to the question is, is this it? Is this the end? 2,000 years ago, yep, this is it. In Hebrews chapter 1, The writer of the Hebrews, just starting out his letter, says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers, the prophets. Speaking of the Old Testament. He says, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things. And so again, first century, yep, this is it. The end is near. And so we might say, well, it's 2,000 years later. How can you say it's near? Well, it's near not in the sense of necessarily time, but it's near in the sense of what's next. What's next is Jesus is coming back, and we don't know when that is. And so what that means for us is it could be before I even finish this sermon. It could be another 2,000 years, but he is coming back. But the fact of the matter is we do not know exactly when. We know it's the next thing. And so what it means that we can't know is perhaps we sh because we don't know the day, we shouldn't spend our time in speculation, being preoccupied with sensationalized news and calculations and speculations. Jesus said it's not for us to know. That he's coming back and that it soon is for us to know. Is this the time? Does this political event mean he's coming back next month? Does this date calculation line up? He says that's not for us to know. But, he says, there's two things that are for you to know. 
He says, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That's the first thing he wanted us to know. When they asked this question, he said, That's not for you to know. Here's what I want you to know. It's not that the nation of Israel will be restored when the Holy Spirit comes. Because when they heard that, their minds went to this kingdom of God, this restoration of Israel. And he said, that's, I'm giving my spirit for a different purpose. And here's what I want you to know. That you'll receive power from the Holy Spirit. You'll not receive power from political favor, from your physical kingdom, growing in influence. That's not where your power will lie. Your power will lie in my spirit living within you. How does the Holy Spirit give us power? This is important for us to understand. One thing how this Holy Spirit does not give us power is the Holy Spirit is not an impersonal thing. <clears throat> Pastor Matt always asks in ordination councils and in other teachings, and often he's teaching the Holy Spirit, many of you have probably heard. He'll, he'll ask candidates, what's the difference between the Force in Star Wars and the Holy Spirit? And that's an important thing to grasp, right? Because when we say we have power from the Holy Spirit, it is not a thing that we manipulate. It is not a thing that just comes upon us that there's good and evil have equal access to that we manipulate for our own gain. But the Holy Spirit is a person. In fact, it's not just a person. It is a person of the Trinity. It is God himself. In Genesis chapter 1, it starts the very beginning of the Bible. In the creation account, it says that the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Even at the creation of the world, this Spirit was a person who was active in creation. In Romans chapter 8, Paul writes in verse 11, he calls it the Spirit of God. He says, If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. And then in verse 14, he says, For for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. There's an equating of the Spirit with God. He is talked about as he, not it. The Holy Spirit is, is who raised Jesus from the dead. There is power there to bring life out of death. In John chapter 14, John 14 through 16 is probably one of the most dense teachings in the Bible of the person of the Holy Spirit. And in John chapter 14, verses 16 and into the beginning of 17, Jesus says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. And in Matthew 28, he says, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And so if the spirit is the one who will be with us forever, and he says, I will be with you to the end of the age, there is not that Jesus and the spirit are the same, but there is a unity in the sense in which Jesus can say, God will be with you, I will be with you. And now, how does this mean, if we have the Holy Spirit, that we have power? Well, if the Spirit is God, and we worship a God who can do all things, he is all-powerful, omnipotent. Therefore, if that same Spirit is within us, then that Spirit brings to us the power of God. In John fifteen five, Jesus says, Abide in me, for without me you can do nothing. And so without 
the power of the Lord, we are powerless. And in Mark 10, 27, Jesus is teaching that the, a rich man cannot get into heaven, and the disciples ask, How, what, what hope is there then? They're asking, what hope is there for anyone? And, God, and Jesus says that um, with man it is impossible, but it is possible with God, for all things are possible with God. And so if with God all things are possible, and if that God to whom everything is possible lives in our hearts, then there must reside power there. We receive power when we receive the Holy Spirit. But there's something, there's a power that that is, that power is for something. So Jesus wants us to know that we have received power from the Holy Spirit, and he wants us to know that we are his witnesses. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. What an honor, and at the same time, what a frightening thing to be a witness for the God of the universe. He just said, you will receive my Holy Spirit, but you will be my witnesses. Each one of you who profess to know Christ, he says, you, I picked you. I could send my spirit, I could write it in the sky to witness about this. But you, worshiping at Lance Evangelical Free Church, you are my witness. You might think, I don't, I'm not a good talker. I don't know how to communicate this. Well, that's me. <laughs> you might say, I don't know how to do that. What if people reject me? What if I mess it up? I have my own problems. How can I help other people? He says, no, you are my witnesses. And he's given us the spirit, which I'm going to return to in just a minute. He also says this in the Great Commission in each of the Gospels in Matthew 28. He says, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. In John 20, he says, Just as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And in Luke, he has a similar command to his disciples as well. Now we might say, and some people do make the argument, well, this, he was talking to the apostles here. This is just for the apostles. This is for his disciples. He specifically commissioned them with this task. That's not untrue. But the implication that it's not for us is untrue. It's for every disciple of Jesus Christ. I just read the Great Commission from Matthew 28. What did he tell them to do? To go and make disciples. And he also said to teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. Everything I've commanded you. Well, let's think for a minute. The most recent thing that Jesus just commanded his disciples to do. Make disciples. So if the disciples are to teach everyone what they, what they have been told to do, then that also implies that all of their disciples are to go and make disciples. And if they teach their disciples all that Jesus told them to do, then that means they make disciples as well. And on down the line to us. If you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, he has said, you are my witnesses. Go and make disciples. Some others might say, well, it wasn't just for the apostles, but why don't we leave it to the professionals? After all, I, I haven't been trained in this. I haven't been to seminary. I haven't, you know, 
been in missionary training to know how to communicate the gospel? Well, first of all, there's a practical solution to that. We've been doing this class, if you've heard about it, (laughs) where we can train you in how to share your faith with others before the service. Come next week. But in a more serious note, in a more biblical note, this is also not true. We have examples of how others were sharing the gospel. Stephen, just a few chapters later in Acts, yes, he was a recently appointed deacon, but was not one of the apostles, and he was stoned. We could also ask, okay, well, the apostles, those couple guys weren't always at these churches, so how did the gospel spread from there? Well, people took up the command themselves. And you might say, well, what about, you know, it's, well, it is just for the professionals. Well, in 2 Corinthians, Paul is writing, and he's addressing the church at Corinth. And he calls the church, he says, we collectively, me and you all, are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. He's not just writing to the elders of the Corinthian church, he's writing to the entire church, and he says that. Another thing we can get even from this text in Acts, he says, I gave you power, so go and be witnesses. We often like to claim the promise of the Holy Spirit. We like to claim the promise at the end of the Great Commission that I will be with you always. That brings great comfort to us. But if we want to take that comfort of the Holy Spirit and not be willing to do the mission that he has given the Holy Spirit for, you can't have your cake and eat it too. If the promise that he gave in the Great Commission of I will be with you always is for you as an ordinary believer, then so is the command to go and make disciples. It's also for you. You don't get to pick and choose. We could also appeal to the testimony of believers I would imagine many of us in this room came to know Jesus Christ not through a professional preacher, not through someone who's in full-time ministry, but through an ordinary Christian who was willing to tell us about the message of Jesus Christ. Might have just been an ordinary parent, or grandparent, or uncle, or a friend. Or maybe you even heard it just from someone who was just willing to talk to you as a stranger, even. God uses ordinary people because he's commanded ordinary people to go and share the message. And that's a scary thing, right? When we think about, and and I do this all the time at Penn State, and it still is a hard and difficult thing to do. It takes courage. But we have to connect these two things he wanted us to know. He said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Those two things, it's not coincidence that he gave those at the same time. It's not for us to know the times and seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but it is for us to know that we have received the power of the Holy Spirit, and it is for us to know that we are to be Jesus' witnesses to the whole world. The Holy Spirit has a profound role in the proclamation of the gospel message. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul is recounting when he preached to the Corinthian church the gospel. In verses 3 through 5, he says, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He didn't come 
with an eloquent message. He didn't come with all the tactics. He came by the power of the Holy Spirit and simply proclaimed the message. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul, Silas, and Timothy are writing to the Thessalonian church. And they say in verse 4, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is crucial for the proclamation of the gospel. It is God speaking through us. In Ezekiel, when an Ezekiel prophet is speaking of the future day, and God says, I will remove your heart of stone, and I'll put my spirit within you and give you a heart of flesh. Whenever someone comes to know Christ, whenever someone responds to the gospel message by placing their faith in Jesus Christ, it is a work of the Spirit. It is the Spirit working through us. This is why prayer is so important in evangelism. This morning when we started the, the class, we, we began not by jumping right into how do we do evangelism. What do you say? How do you do this? How do you start the conversation? We started by thinking of the people who we want to come to know Christ, and we prayed for them. The reason for that is because you could be the most eloquent evangelist, the most eloquent speaker. You could be up here without any notes, preaching the gospel in the most powerful way, and if you do not have the Holy Spirit, it will accomplish nothing. You might have some people who appear to follow, but their faith will not be in Christ. The Spirit must speak. The Spirit must change hearts. You see, we have to know both of these things together. If we know that we have the Holy Spirit, but don't know that we are called to be witnesses, we might, like the disciples, misunderstand our task. We might misunderstand what the Holy Spirit is given to us for. On the other hand, if we know that we are called to be witnesses— but we don't know that we have the power of the Holy Spirit, then there's another problem. At best, we'll be fearful at at going about this task. And at worst, we will be wholly ineffective at doing it. Jesus says it's not for you to know the timing of these things. But what is for you to know? Here's the power. Here's the mission. That's in light of us not knowing when he's coming back. That's what he wants us to know. Back to verse 9 in Acts. It says, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus is ascending in glory. There is a cloud taking him up. This is a signal of his divinity, of the glory he is ascending into heaven as the cloud descended on the tabernacle in the Old Testament, signifying God's presence. So the cloud lifting him up into heaven signifies his dignity. And you know what? These angels who stood by them said he's going to come back in just the same way. We read in passages such as Mark 13, Matthew 26, Revelation 1, 7, that Jesus is going to come down on the clouds of heaven, meaning in glory as well. As they stood amazed and in awe as he ascended into heaven, so when he returns will we stand amazed and in awe at his return. 
Jesus will, has, ascends into glory, and there's this promise. He's going to come back in just the same way. So what are we going to do in the meantime? Are we in the end times? You bet we are. These are the last days. What do we do in light of his imminent return? The FCA statement of faith on the return of Christ says, We believe in the personal, bodily, and glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ. The coming of Christ at a time known only to God, we do not know, demands constant expectancy and, as our blessed hope, motivates a believer to godly living, sacrificial service, and, does anyone know the last one? Energetic mission. Evangelism. Being witnesses. How will we spend these last days? What is our task? Will we be preoccupied trying to read the times and calculate and speculate and fear and prepare by holding up somewhere? Will we treat it like the disciples' question, is this it? Is this the end? I need to figure this out. Or will we allow the Spirit to work in us to boldly witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The disciples asked a question about eschatological timing. They got an answer about the evangelistic task. Now, it's not that eschatology in the end times is not worth studying, but if it's mere speculation, if it's mere sensationalized news articles and headlines and interpreting American politics in light of things, and meaning that means we just need to hole up and, and wait it out, and we're missing the entire point. Urgency and missions. That's what ought to come out of us not knowing when he's coming back. We do not know when the end will come upon us. Will we fear, or will we follow Jesus? Will we predict, or will we preach? Will we make theories or will we make disciples? We may not know exactly when Jesus will come back, but we know what he has called us to do until then. That he makes clear in this answer, in this final answer he gives. And we know that he has given us the power to carry out that mission.